Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Tuesday, September 20th. With us now is the United States Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. He has an op-ed in USA Today published this morning called Our Kids' Mental Health is as Critical as Their Grades. Here's how to prioritize both. Dr. Murthy has been prioritizing mental health since his first stint as Surgeon General under President Obama. President Biden appointed him to a second term. We'll spend most of our time with the Surgeon General talking about that topic, but a few minutes first asking him to interpret what President Biden said about COVID on 60 Minutes on Sunday. The president said this. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's what the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. It's actually a lot to unpack in those 14 seconds, isn't there? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. How do those fit together? The pandemic is changing. Yet another thought. Everybody seems to be in good shape. Those are all lines from that little soundbite, and those are all pretty different concepts. And the U.S. has been in a kind of Omicron steady state since the spring, with an average of 400-plus deaths per day, week after week, month after month, according to the New York Times COVID tracker, and with most experts predicting it'll get worse, not better, as the colder weather sets in. So with all of that as prelude, we welcome U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, back to the show. Uh, Dr. Murthy, we always appreciate you sharing your time with us. Welcome back to WNYC. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I always enjoy being on with you. And I realize you're in an awkward position because you're appointed by the president, and I would guess you wouldn't describe the state of COVID exactly the way he did there. But do you agree with the president, what he said on 60 Minutes? And can all those different statements about COVID fit together in any way? Or did he give us a confusing mixed message? Well, Brian, here's how to think about where we are. We have made tremendous progress since this pandemic started. The number of people who are dying each day from COVID is dramatically lower than the peak. We have far fewer people in hospitals. And we've got people getting back to normal in many ways. All of our kids, including my kids, are back in school in person. People are getting back to work. They're seeing family members and friends. But it is also true that we have more work to do. And two things can be true at the same time, that we've made progress and that we have more work to do. And that work ahead of us involves making sure that we protect as many people possible going forward from COVID. That means making sure people are up to date with their vaccines. We have a new updated vaccine that's in fact has just come out. We're encouraging people to get it. If you're 12 years of age and up uh, and you're more than two months out from your last shot, you're eligible to get this vaccine. Uh, And that along with making sure people know about treatments that are available if they do get sick like Paxlovid, this is part of how we're gonna make sure we keep doing the work Uh, that's ahead. Uh, So that's how I would think about where we are now, Brian. We've made tremendous progress. I'm optimistic about the future, but we've got to keep our our foot on the accelerator because we want to remain vigilant. We want to keep doing the things that we need to do to make sure everyone has protection. One consequence of the president's remark on 60 Minutes on Sunday is that investors started ditching vaccine stocks on Monday. According to the Financial Times, it says they wiped out $10 billion of value from those companies, just as the president and you 
are continuing to emphasize the importance of vaccines, including the new vaccine. Should Pfizer and Moderna be cutting back on vaccine production? We continue to believe that vaccines are going to be an important part of the backbone of this response. We know that vaccines historically in public health have been one of our greatest gifts. They've helped us provide and prevent so many illnesses and save millions of lives over the course of history. And it, we're seeing this true with COVID as well, that we've been able across the world to save millions of lives because of COVID vaccines in the last you know, year and year and a half alone. So the bottom line is, you know, we're going to continue to need vaccines, but the, va- the response that we have uh, that we've built for COVID-19 is a multifaceted response. Yes, vaccines are a key part of it, but it also involves treatments. We want people to know that there are treatments available like Paxlovid. It includes testing. Uh, we've been able to ship millions of free tests to people in their homes so that they can see whether or not uh, they actually have uh, this illness and then take steps accordingly. But Brian, one important thing to underscore here is that that sustained response requires sustained investment and sustained attention. And one of my worries, going back to when I was Surgeon General in the Obama administration and dealing with Zika and with Ebola, is sometimes when things start to get better. Uh, you know, I worry that we turn away as government, as society, and we stop putting the money toward making sure people stay safe. Uh, so we still need that ongoing investment to make sure we have vaccines for people in the future, make sure that tests are available, that uh, folks can get the treatments that they need. That's how we're going to continue to keep the country safe. One more COVID thing. Should policy do more to protect people who are statistically so much more susceptible to serious disease and death by immune status, which means people with immunocompromising conditions, and also by age, because seniors have less of an immune system for the most part. For example, in conjunction with a call-in we did yesterday, someone told me about their mother who is in her 60s and has diabetes and has been working remotely, and she says she would retire out of COVID concerns rather than go back to the office because of her vulnerability if her employer were to force her into that stark choice. And I'm curious if you think there should be some kind of senior citizens and people with underlying conditions bill of rights for the endemic era that we're entering, including accommodations for work wherever possible. Well, first of all, I certainly can appreciate uh, the concern your caller is raising. For all of us who have, uh, you know, parents, grandparents who are 65 and above, we ourselves are 65 and above, we know that this has been a tough time for people who are older because they've been at higher risk of bad outcomes with COVID. One hallmark uh, of our response effort, and really this has been a guiding principle for many of us who have worked on the COVID response, is that uh, equity needs to be at the center of that response. And that means making sure that we are uh, looking to every population uh, and making sure that they have the protection they need. Now, with high-risk populations, those who are elderly, who are immunocompromised, who have multiple medical conditions like heart disease and diabetes that may put them at higher risk, it's been especially important to make sure that they have access to treatment. So we have actually focused a lot of our efforts at both getting vaccines and treatments on higher risk populations, including, for example, going uh, to nursing homes and facilities where people are at higher risk and making sure we supply vaccine directly to them, that we set up services to bring pharmacies directly there to administer uh, vaccines. So yes, we have to continue prioritizing those at higher risk. And I think outside of government, I think workplaces uh, and schools and other institutions should be sensitive to this too, should recognize that as we move into this next phase with our COVID response, we've all got to be sensitive to the fact that there are going to be people around us 
who are at higher risk. Uh, that might mean that we need to make special accommodations for them. It might mean that they may choose to wear masks in settings where we may choose not to. And we've got to recognize that those choices are appropriate for people to make based on their risk, and we should be supporting them in that regard. My guest is U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, and we turn the page now to talk about mental health and youth mental health especially In your USA Today op-ed released this morning, you cite statistics that are alarmingly high regarding high school-age students, 45% persistently sad or hopeless, 20% saying they've seriously considered suicide over the past year, 10% have tried it. Are those the stats you think represent American teenagers today? Well, sadly, I do worry that, that this is where we are right now, but it's not where we have to be. You know, one of the reasons I have focused so much on mental health is not only because I care about this deeply as Surgeon General and I see the challenges young people are facing and all people across our country, but also as a doctor, I've seen the struggles that people have had with mental health up close for years. And as a father, I look at my own two children who are four and six, I look at the world they're growing up in, I look at the impact of the pandemic on them. And I worry about them, about their friends, about other kids around the country. If you think about the state of mental health right now, imagine a, uh, you know, a school that has 1,000 children, 1,000 high school students. Uh, about 450 of those students right now are feeling persistently sad or hopeless. About 200 of those students uh, have considered suicide. About 100 of those students have attempted suicide. That is a state of mental health among youth in America today. And that's not acceptable. We have to do better. One of the reasons I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on this topic in December of 2021 was to call the nation's attention to the urgency of this crisis, but also to lay out the actions that we have to take to do really three things. One, expand access to treatment. It takes on average 11 years from when a child has mental health symptoms to when they actually get care. That's an extraordinarily long period of time. The second, though, is we have got to also invest in prevention programs. We actually know, Brian, about programs that when instituted in schools and in communities can actually help reduce the likelihood that our kids struggle with mental health issues down the line and turns out have other benefits too, like reducing the likelihood they will uh, have to endure substance use disorders. But we are just not implementing uh, these programs. And Mm -hmm. third, we've got to address the stigma around mental health. Even though younger generations are much better at talking about mental health and having open conversations, there is still a sense of shame that many people carry with them uh, when they you know, struggle with their mental health and a sense of shame that prevents them from asking for help. The good news is there is more help available today than perhaps at any time in recent history. We have 988 set up a, a hotline that people can call directly if they're in crisis to get access to, to counselors. We have now more and more counselors in schools uh, for young kids who are struggling. We have more help available through telemedicine, through remote, uh, you know, remote access. You just need to make sure that people feel that it's okay to ask for help. Since you framed a lot of that in post-pandemic terms or post-worst of the pandemic terms, um, why wouldn't things be getting much better now from a mental health standpoint with school and all activities back after the worst of the pandemic and social contact back for just about all young people? It could be a time of relief and the joy of reemerging into fully lived lives, but that's not the picture you're painting. Uh, I'm so glad you asked this question, Brian, because this isn't always entirely intuitive. Uh, let me uh, frame two reasons why 
kids may still be struggling. Uh, number one, many kids were struggling before the pandemic. And we knew know that like there was a 57% increase in the suicide rate, for example, among young people in the decade preceding COVID-19. But when, and many of those things have not changed. The factors that were driving uh, concerns among youth mental health pre-pandemic you know, included, for, for some kids, technology. For many children, their use of technology, including social media, has led them to feel more isolated, more anxious, um, has also led them to feel worse about themselves and about their friendships. Uh, for others, uh, you know, they've struggled with bullying, both online and offline bullying. Uh, many young people uh, struggle with difficulties and stressors at home, economic stressors and others. Uh, and certainly that was accelerated during the pandemic, but it predated the pandemic as well. A lot of those concerns are still there uh, for young people who are also, by the way, dealing with trauma, with violence in their communities uh, each and every day. But the other thing to look at, the other reason why kids are still struggling today, Brian, even though we're at a better place with the pandemic, is because if you look at hurricanes and tornadoes and other natural disasters, what you see is that mental health concerns actually sometimes can stay even or even dip in the midst of the crisis. But as the crisis starts to get better, those mental health concerns surface. And in fact, it can look like they're getting worse. Um, it's almost like when you're in an acute stress state, when you're in a crisis, sometimes you manage to pull things together. But when the crisis starts to abate, then everything surfaces, the feelings wash over you, yeah. and sometimes you can feel even more fatigued. And for many people, not just kids, but frankly, their parents also, this is their experience they're having too. Now, lastly, just say, Brian, well, let me just mention parents for a moment, because I know we're talking about kids here. But the mental health of children is deeply impacted by their parents. And the truth is, parenting was not easy pre-pandemic, but it's become really tough during the pandemic, as parents have had to juggle managing their children and homeschooling in the early days uh, to thinking and worrying about their own health, the health of loved ones, uh, and to do all the usual things that you have to do with parenting, including for many parents working from home and managing telework. So this has been a tough time for parents, and I say that as a parent who myself has felt overwhelmed at times during this pandemic. But, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the piece that I wrote uh, in USA Today, today was to lay out for parents both signs they can look forward to know if their kids are struggling, but also steps that they can take to help their children. And one of those most important steps is to open up a conversation with your children about mental health. It's not always easy to do, but simply asking your kids how they're doing, listening without judgment, sharing some of your own experiences and reminding them that it's okay to ask for help. These can go a long way to reminding kids that they're not alone and that it's okay to talk about mental health. And I love that you put the two simple words, unconditional love, in your USA Today article. Let's get in a couple of phone calls here for you. Alexis in Red Bank, you're on WNYC with the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Hi, Alexis. Good. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Varthi. Um, you're hitting all the important points um, as far as I see them. Unfortunately, our community had a 14-year-old beautiful little girl take her own life last week and um, last year we had a young 15-year-old boy take his life um, both involved in sports etc it did involve involve with one child cyber bullying um, I agree it's a lot to do with parenting and so many parents are under so much pressure they don't necessarily have the time or the tools to support the way they want to and I'm wondering, um, with all of this COVID money, why hasn't some of it been put towards um, 
you know, uh, supports for parents, educating them on how to block certain websites from their children's phone, um, appropriate use of the phone, how to take a phone from a teenager. Um, unfortunately, until we get all of this under control, this is going to continue. And I think it's great that Alexis, we have Alexis, I'm going to cut in here. I, okay. I apologize, but because our time with the Surgeon General is limited, uh, talk to Alexis and everybody about phones and cyberbullying in this context. Well, Alexis, thank you so much, first of all, for calling in. And I'm so heartbroken to hear about the 14- and 15-year-old children in your community uh, who were lost to suicide. You know, I regret that this is unfortunately a too common story that we are hearing young people whose lives are cut short and often related to bullying. Uh, look, I think that this is a this is, to me, a disturbing and, and profound issue, which is that when it comes to social media in particular, we are allowing a grand national experiment to take place on our children without fully understanding what the impact is of these platforms. And what kids tell me, uh, high school students, middle school students uh, who are using social media early and college students, is that social media makes them feel worse about themselves and about their friendships, and it often subjects them to abuse. So we clearly need to do more here. One of the things that's important that you mentioned is the pandemic resources, the funding that was uh, was passed by Congress and pushed by the president. A lot of this has actually gone toward helping kids with their mental health in schools, hiring counselors, building and supporting mental health programs in schools. But you're also right that we have to do more when it comes to technology. I think we need safety standards when it comes to this technology. We need to ensure that there's data transparency because we don't have enough data from the companies to tell us which kids are most impacted, how they're impacted by social media, but we know many kids are hurt by it. And finally, to your point about parents, we need to provide parents with more support when it comes to understanding how to manage social media and phones, what are best practices, what are warning signs they should be looking out for. All of the burden of managing this cannot fall solely on parents. Uh, parents have already taken on too much. We need to have their backs. That means policymakers, friends and neighbors, community leaders. We all need to step up provide parents with the resources they need. That's why I'm so focused on this issue. And we're going to keep working on this until every parent and child has the help that they need. Arthur in Crown Heights. You're on WNYC with Dr. Murthy. Hi, Arthur. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I think this is uh, just such a core issue for young people today and uh, our entire community. I'm sort of wondering here if we aren't ignoring the elephant in the room, which is that a lot of young people today, uh, in my experience talking to them and just paying attention to the culture, seem to feel that their life prospects are fairly dismal if they aren't attached to generational wealth. In other words, it seems like we're at a, a phase in the development of society where extractive capitalism is fairly hyperactive. And, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really open up a lot of prospects for young people to be themselves in creative ways or to imagine a working life for themselves or a family in the future. Um, and I just sort of wonder if we aren't, you know, putting a Band-Aid over a gaping wound here, you know, until we start talking about um, what the market economy is doing to human souls, uh, we may continue to struggle and, you know, struggle in more more of a crisis mode in the future. Arthur, thank you very much for, more of an observation. for raising it that way. And I will throw in the fact that child poverty went down during the pandemic, another maybe counterintuitive thing because of all the pandemic relief. 
as that's going away, child poverty is starting to go up again. That's got to have an impact on their mental health. So, Dr. Murthy, where would you enter that conversation? Well, Arthur is raising a really important point, which is that we hope that our kids, when they look at the future, that they feel good, optimistic, positive about the life that they're going to be leading as adults. But too many kids that I talk to these days say that they're not sure the future is necessarily brighter. They look at the violence uh, that threatens and, and, and impacts their communities. They look at the threat of racism. They look at the ongoing and growing threat of climate change. And they ask me, is the future really better uh, than the past? Many young people are also struggling with loneliness and disconnection from one another. And we often think about young people as being so connected because they're on social media a lot. But when you look at recent studies that have been done uh, of the population more broadly, uh, some of them show alarming rates uh, of loneliness and isolation. The recent 2020 Cygnus study, for example, showed that more than 60% of people are struggling with loneliness. And the group that's struggling the most among those are actually young people with rates that can approach 75% when it comes to loneliness. And, and why is that consequential? Because when you struggle with loneliness, it increases your risk for anxiety, for depression, for physical health problems like cardiovascular disease. So the bottom line is, yes, there are deeper issues at play here. We have to build a better, more secure future for our children, and we also have to invest in social connection and stitching together the social fabric of our communities. And with that, we end with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the United States Surgeon General. Let us not be silent about this. Dr. Murthy, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.